Before we start this episode, we have a quick message from our sponsors. If you're studying for the Foreign Service Officer Test like us, we have a great study tool for you. Besides listening to our podcast, we also use FSO Compass. On FSO Compass, you can find practice tests for every section, comprehensive courses that guide you through the entire application process, and you can even connect with other aspiring U.S. diplomats. The resources have really helped us prepare, and we hope they help you too. To access FSO Compass and get 10% off your annual subscription, be sure to use the link in our description box. Good luck! Hi everybody, and welcome back to another episode of How Did We Not Know That? My name's Jack. I'm Nat. And today, Nat is going to present on... What are you presenting? <laughs> I'm presenting on the Arab Spring today. Um, have you heard of the Arab Spring before? Never. Okay. So, yeah. So the reason I chose this topic for the first like episode I wanted to cover for season two world history, I wanted to focus on the Middle East. Because I really don't know anything about the Middle East. I have so many questions and so many things to learn. So I knew I wanted to focus on the Middle East. And the topic I'm covering today is actually super recent. Like it happened in 2011. So it's like, I don't know, it's not like super far back in history. But I think for people who are not really sure about like, they don't understand current events going on in the Middle East today, this event kind of explains what why the Middle East looks like it does today so yeah so okay so do you also like what do you what do you know about what's going on what's happening in the Middle East today like do you know okay like any specific yeah I I know a little bit because one of my good friends is Syrian and Mm -hmm. so he explained to me the situation in Syria yeah um, so I think they're just, like, a bunch of, like, they don't, they didn't like the government in Syria, and so a bunch of different rebel groups are, did, like, a coup d'etat, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of different rebel groups, so then everyone's kind of just fighting for a position of power and control, and so that has wrecked havoc in Syria, and that's why it's, like, war-torn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I know. No, yeah, actually, like, I'll be talking about yeah, there's like a civil war going on there and it's connected to the Arab Spring. So I'll like be going into like more detail about that. But yeah, yeah. So Syria, that's like, it's like the biggest refugee crisis currently. So yeah. Okay. So I'm just gonna go right in. So a brief description of what the Arab Spring is. Basically, it was a series of pro-democracy revolutions that began in the spring of 2011 in largely Muslim and Arabic-speaking countries in North Africa and the Middle East. So to list the countries that were affected by the Arab Spring, there's a lot. So Tunisia, Morocco, Syria, Libya, Egypt, Bahrain, Algeria, Jordan, Oman, Iraq, Sudan, and Lebanon. So it's like a huge amount of countries were swept up in this movement. There were widespread protests and revolutions. Uh, and it was all, like, within a very short time period. Question. Is this... Um, so when people talk about the Middle East conflict, is this all stemming from that, the Arab Spring? Or are they separate things happening? So the Middle East, there's a lot of conflict 
and war and violence going on. Arab Spring is like one of the events that have has stemmed from this conflict. Okay. It was caused by uh people who are like unhappy with authoritarian governments um and like violence that was happening in their own country. You'll see that like it fuels even more violence in the end, so it's kind of just like a a cycle of like people are really unhappy with their government. They revolt, a new government is put in power, but then it falls apart and then they revolt again. So there's just been a lot of like turmoil in the area. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in this, the Arab Spring, it all began in December of 2010 in Tunisia when a 26-year-old street vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi was harassed and publicly humiliated by police because he didn't have a permit to sell like his fruits and vegetables. Yeah, they like harassed him violently and he was like obviously really upset. So he tried to complain about his mistreatment uh, to local authorities, but they like wouldn't listen to him. They were like, whatever, like leave us alone. And so in an act of protest, Boazizi set himself on fire outside of the local governor's office. Yeah, and obviously like he passed away. His death uh, sparked outrage amongst the rest of people in Tunisia because there was a huge, I guess, gap between the government and the working class people. And the working class people were suffering through a lot of economic hardships. uh, And they were so upset that this man was treated so poorly just because he didn't have a permit. So they're like enraged. And so protests broke out in the streets of the capital, Tunis. And on January 14th, so like a few weeks later, the authoritarian president, I'm probably going to mispronounce all these names, so I apologize in, in advance. Okay. Zain al-Avidin Ben Ali, he abdicated his position and he fled the country after 23 years of rule. So, like, this is a huge deal because they had this awful, like, dictator who had been ruling for decades. And because of these protests, in a matter of, like, a couple weeks, he was removed from power. Also, okay, before I continue... Just a fair warning, I'm going to be covering a lot of different countries and a lot of different names of leaders. So if you get confused at all, like just interrupt me and I could clarify. But yeah, I'm going to be like bouncing around. So yeah. (laughs) Okay, yeah. So he's removed from office, right? And so it was like a successful protest, right? They wanted him gone and then he left. So social media... Because this is 2011, right? So social media has a huge influence on the movement because people from Tunisia were posting photos and videos of their successful uprising. And these images inspired activists in other countries nearby to fight for more social freedoms and more participation in the political process. So all of a sudden, we see similar movements all across the region in like a really short period of time. So again, I'm going to list the countries just really quick. Um, so we obviously Tunisia, there's also Morocco, Syria, Libya, Egypt, Bahrain, Algeria, Jordan, Oman, Iraq, Sudan, Sudan, and Lebanon. So a huge amount of countries. And obviously, I don't have enough time to cover the protests in every single one of these movements. Um, so instead, I'll just be focusing on a few of these countries, especially those that had regime changes because of the protests. But I encourage everyone, again, to do further research. So first, I'm going to talk about Egypt. So on January 2nd, 
uh, mass protests began in Cairo, which is the capital, and they lasted for 18 days. And they brought together tens of thousands of people, so it's huge crowds. And then a month later, on February 11th, President Hosni Mubarak is removed from office, and he had been ruling the country for 30 years. Um, so he was a really violent dictator, so people had been having a lot of issues with him. They obviously like, did not like his regime. When, the, when you say removed, is it peacefully removed or coup d'etat, or did they step, let, did they step down? He was forcefully removed, I believe. Okay. Yeah, 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 by the military. Oh, okay. He loses public support, and then he loses the support of the military, which is, like, a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And so the military takes over temporarily because there's, like, no leader, right? They had removed Mubarak from office, and now they need to step up. And in 2012, they had elections, and they voted Mohamed Morsi. They voted him into office as president. However... A year after he was sworn into office, he is also removed through a military coup. So (laughs) he only was serving for a year, and then the military overthrows him. And the defense minister at the time, his name is Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, and he becomes president. And he's still in power today. So this was in 2012, and he still is the president of Egypt today. And he has a very, he's a very violent authoritarian leader. And so tens of thousands of peaceful activists and critics of LCC's government remain in jail today. And hundreds of them have been sentenced to death. So there's virtually like no freedom of speech. So I'll get back to Egypt, but for now I'm going to continue on to some countries that, um, they broke out into a civil war because of the Arab Spring. So first, I'm going to talk about Libya. So in the summer of 2011, a civil war outbreaks. And this is like because of all the protests that had been inspired by the Arab Spring. In October of 2011, the authoritarian dictator Muammar Gaddafi, he is overthrown during an extremely violent civil war. He's tortured and he's literally dragged through the streets Um, And he's executed by opposition fighters. And there is, because of social media, like people were recording these incidents. So video footage of his death was shared on social media and was seen by millions of people online. Wow. So that like, it just shows you the power of the internet. Yeah. So he's, Gaddafi is overthrown. Uh, Even though he was overthrown, Libya still remains in a state of civil war. There are two rival governments that are both claiming authority over the country. Um, All sides have committed war crimes and serious human rights abuses. uh, And the people of Libya have suffered terribly through political upheaval. And they have to survive violence on the streets, as well as limited access to food and resources and healthcare services. And because of this, thousands of people have fled the country, mostly by boat, and they are going to Europe, to other parts of Europe. And so it's like an ongoing refugee crisis. And again, I'll go into more detail in a bit, 
Um, Yemen is also still currently in a civil war that has its roots in the Arab Spring. Yemen is a pretty, isn't that, Yemen's a pretty young country, aren't they? They're only like 50 or 60 years old too. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I just know this because I had a teacher whose daughter went to Yemen and came back and brought us hummus really? and like pita bread and then ta- told us about Yemen. So. Really? Wow. Yeah. Oh my god. But it's a young country, so... Yeah, I didn't realize it was such a young country. But, yeah, so they, they're they still in a civil war. And so basically, also in 2011, another longtime authorian president, his name was Ali Abdullah Saleh. He, he's overthrown. And then Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi, he assumes power. Uh, and so political tensions are, they continue to grow Different groups are fighting for control over the country. And one of these groups is known as the Houthis, which represent the Shia Muslim minority. So just as a refresher, there are basically two major denominations of Islam. It's Shia and Sunni. So yeah, so the Houthis are the minority Shia Muslims. And they start taking control over territories in Yemen. And in early 2015, they actually overtook the capital of Sana'a. The Houthis, the, the rebel group, and then security forces, like military forces who were loyal to the original dictator that had been overthrown, Saleh. So they joined forces, forces together and they forced the current president, Hadi, his name is Hadi, they forced him to flee the country in March 2015. And so he still is, like, ruling over the country. I'm pretty sure he's returned to Yemen, but they, like, forced him to flee the country. And so the civil war, obviously, is still going on today. And so foreign powers, there's a lot of foreign interference in the civil war. And basically, it's, like, different countries are either supporting the Houthi rebels or they're supporting the Hadi government. Um, and... Throughout all of this, obviously, civilians are suffering from not only the violence of war, but also a huge famine in the country. Wow. Wait, so all of those overthrowing of the leaders, that's happening in every country in 2011? Yeah, like, basically the countries I'm highlighting. So all the countries that I listed earlier, not all of them had regime regime changes. Uh, some of them just, like, weren't as successful they didn't have as much momentum and so there are a lot of protests in these countries but not a lot of change happened but then like the countries I'm talking about now basically like the whole country was flipped upside down the governments were overthrown and leaders were changed and and like it's just crazy like I I think I said this earlier but I was 12 at the time this happened so I was not paying attention to what was going on but I just, like, can't imagine, I don't know, like, the whole region, all these governments are changing, like, one after another, and, man, it, like, I'm sure the people living in the region were just so, like, scared and, like, paranoid. You don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow, like, everything could change in a day, you know? Yeah, can you imagine if we found news that some violent rebel group overtook, like, our president? Regardless of how you feel about the president, I'd still be concerned about that happening. Right, and, like, these countries are smaller, and they're all clustered so close together. So it's almost, like, 
like I'm in Illinois now. So it's like if Wisconsin and then like Indiana and Iowa, like all of a sudden, like there were like revolutions in all these states. And like you just see it one after another. It's like spreading like wildfire. So it like it's just such a chaotic time. So, okay, so last I'm going to talk about Syria. So you kind of gave an overview earlier, but just a little more like details. So basically in March 15th um, of 2011, there a peaceful pro-democracy protests began, but they're met with government opposition. So the Syrian government killed and impre- imprisoned these peaceful protesters. Yeah, it was like an extremely violent response and it was obviously like horrifying. And so Syria quickly split into factions, like different groups and violence broke out and this was like the beginning of a civil war that continues to this day. The civil war is still going on. Um, and so basically with the civil war, you have the oppressive regime of longtime dictator Bashar al-Assad. So he's he was the president or dictator, I guess. Um, and he's still in power today. And he's fighting against rebel forces who are trying to gain control over the country. So you have, yeah... Bashar al-Assad's government and then rebel forces who want to overthrow him. Um, And then you also have a lot of extremist groups that have come into Syria and infiltrated the country. Um, One of these groups is ISIS. And at one point, ISIS had um, gained so much territory in northeastern Syria that they declared a caliphate. And a caliphate is basically a nation that's governed by Islamic law. So they had had all this territory in Syria, and they were like, okay, this is our Islamic nation uh, controlled by ISIS. But the civil war has displaced more than half of all Syrians. So that's about 11 million people, and it's killed up to half a million people. It's the largest refugee crisis of the 21st century, and Syrians have been fleeing to seek refuge in Turkey, Greece, and other parts of Western Europe. They're not always met with, like, warm, welcoming arms. Um, and so, yeah, even, like, you know, they're, if they stay in Syria, like, they could be killed. If they leave Syria, they are, like, leading a very difficult life. Yeah. And, yeah, again, like, all these civil wars that I just mentioned, like, they're still going on today. Um, I think, like, with COVID, we're all kind of preoccupied with that like that's pretty distracting but it's also like something to remember too that like this stuff is still going on it's not like it gets put on pause because of a pandemic but Mm -hmm. so all these like civil wars broke out there were regime changes there were successful protests unsuccessful like revolutions and basically tunisia where it started with the street vendor uh tunisia is pretty much seen as one of the only successful revolutions of the Arab Spring. Um, That's because in October of 2011, they had their first democratic parliament elections. And then um, they had, they drafted a new constitution. And this new constitution protects freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and it also bans torture. So it was like a lot of progress. Uh, and there are a lot of like major human rights improvements. However, it's not perfect yet. Um, like there have still been instances of suppression of speech by like 
political opponents um and there have been like journalists who have been like arrested so it's not perfect yet but they had a like a huge amount of improvement however like the overall movements of 2011 and the arab spring in general has been seen as like kind of a failure because the original goals of these uprisings were to increase social freedoms and increase democratic participation in their governments Uh, And sadly, protesters instead saw more war and violence and there are now like stronger repercussions for people who speak out for a fair, a more fair and more open society. So if you like, if we ask ourselves, like, why, why did these movements fail? Like some people will argue that, oh, it's like the incompetence of the revolutionaries or like the transitional leaders, so the leaders that took over after the governments were overthrown, they were like, oh, they just, like, they failed. Like, they didn't do a good job. They didn't know what they were doing. Um, However, like, myself and a lot of other people argue that the blame can be placed on, like, the failure of institutions. And so Vox, uh, Vox is one of my sources, um, and they read, they wrote a huge article about like how the failure of institutions was why the revolutions like weren't successful. And so they have a really good quote. So I'm just going to read it. So democratic transition, it turns out, isn't about whom you can overthrow or whom you replace them with. It's about whether or how you change the vast network of institutions underneath that person. So no matter how many times you topple the dictator, no matter how pure and good your protesters are, it won't be enough. Um, so I really like that quote. And so now, yeah, like, I guess I'm going to go into more detail about, like, what does that mean? Like, oh, institutions failed. Like, that's kind of confusing. So if we look at, first, let's look at Egypt. Um, just, like, as a refresher, because I, I talked about so many different names and countries. So they, protesters had originally overthrown uh, the dictator Mubarak, right? And so he had been ruling for three decades. And over these three decades, he basically ensured that no opposition party or civil society institution grew strong enough to challenge him. Um, So, for example, he staffed the interior ministry with his supporters rather than, like, effective leaders. So, like, the patronage and spoil system, like we talked about. Um, And then this made it easier, like, this gave way to corruption, right? And then he stripped the judiciary system of its power, and this weakened the rule of law and gave him the power to persecute his political opponents. And so basically, he made sure that all these institutions in the government were like very weak, and they couldn't support a transition if his like, if his regime fell. The only institution that grew stronger was the military. He um, he made the military a lot stronger, and this kind of backfired because he lost public support, and then he lost the loyalty of his military. So then the military, like, overthrew him. So, yeah, so he's overthrown, right? And then the next guy is elected. Morsi is elected into power. But he, like, he was pretty much set up for failure because all of these institutions were, like, he was starting from below ground zero, you know, because he had to, like, rebuild all these institutions. Like, there's corruption throughout the government, and so you kind of have to rebuild everything, and that's a really difficult task. So he failed, and 
instead of like democratically electing a new president, like there these institutions were too weak to prevent further revolution, so he was overthrown by the military in a coup. So like does that make sense? Yeah, kind wait, of? which country is this again? This is Egypt. Okay. All these institutions were weak and then now we still have there's still a dictator in Egypt and it's because there's no like checks and balances, you know? Because mm-hmm. the original dictator had erased all these checks and balances. So it's hard to... It, it doesn't matter about the people who are in power. It's about, like, the setup of the government, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so, basically, the same thing happened in Libya. Gaddafi had, like, been weakening institutions over his 20 years of rule, 30 years of rule. And so no one was able to challenge him. And so that... And so now Libya is in a civil war, like, fighting for control because there had been no, like, strong opposition parties. Like, you might be asking, like, oh, my God, like, why are there so many dictators? It's because there's, like, a lot of instability after these, after Britain and France, like, pulled out of the Middle East. And then there's, like, a strong sense of nationalism. And, like, it was easy for people to kind of, like, take power by using nationalism as, like, a uniting identity factor. And then also... Like, because of oil, oil reserves in the Middle East, like, these leaders were able to make a lot of money really quick. And then they were able to, like, fund different institutions. So, like, the military and, like, they were able to, like, bribe people and basically, like, fund their dictatorship. So that's a, that's another reason why we see a lot of, like, authoritarian regimes in the region. Makes sense. So for Syria, so the military is really, really strong, and they have remained loyal to Bashar al-Assad because he basically engineered the military as an instrument to rule the country. So he weakened all the other institutions, made the military stronger, but he made sure that they would like always remain loyal to him and do whatever he said. And because of this, Syria is pretty much the worst case scenario because like, there's a brutal evil dictator that has like a really a good amount of territory and he's attacking civilians and he re- he's, remains in power but there's also a power vacuum in the territory that he lost and that has opened the door for ISIS and other extremist groups to infiltrate the country so it's like that's why it's such a violent situation and that's why it hasn't been resolved yet uh it's just like Literally the worst case scenario. And then so if you're asking yourself, so why did Tunisia succeed? Why were they like the only country to succeed? Um, Basically, their first post-revolutionary government had remained stable. And when the people started disagreeing with their leader, they he was defeated in the polls rather than through a coup. Like they just voted him out of office after his term was up. Yeah, did... Sorry, did any of the other countries uh, write constitutions? Um, no, I think Bahrain, Bahrain, they have a constitutional monarchy, and I think they tried to draft a new constitution, but I'm pretty sure Yeah, I, I feel like writing it down helps. Yeah. <laughs> Just like studying other countries. Yeah. When you have a constitution and you write, like, okay, this is how the government should be formed, um... But I don't know. That's not to, like, diminish what happened in Egypt. But, yeah, I, I feel like the one differing thing you told me is that Tunisia had a constitution that yeah. outlawed certain elements. Yeah, yeah. Like, they were able to draft a constitution, but that's because they had 
stronger civil institutions before the protest began. So, okay. like, they did have a dictator, but they still had um, strong, like, opposition mm. parties. And they had, like, human rights groups and, like, lawyers and, like, clerks, like, were still strong and present. And, like, that's a really big deal um, because, like, those people were able to, like, come together and diffuse political tensions. They were able to write a new constitution and then they were able to continue with, like, fair elections because they had, like, these strong institutions. I know I'm, like, repeating myself, but... No, that makes sense. How does one diminish the power of an institution? Do you just remove funding? Yeah. Well, like, kind of, like, what I... I guess, like, using Egypt as an example again, like, he just replaced all the government officials with his supporters, so it was, like, super corrupt. So there's no one who's, like, knows what they're doing. Like, no one who's, like, an expert at their job. It's not, like... Like, the people who are, like, leading the country are not necessarily, like, the best people. They're just, like, people who gave him money, right? Yeah. And so there's, like, so much corruption. And so now it's, like, okay, we have to, like, fill all these government roles. But, like, how do we do that? If you, yeah, if you replace, like, all your country's judges with, again, like, supporters or, like, people that you could pay off. Yeah. Then there's no, like, judicial system. And so basically it's, like, you're... You're replacing the entire government with people who, yeah, it's like the patronage system, but like extreme, you know? I guess, how would you even rise up against that? Like, yeah. as the people, there's not really other way than by force. Yeah, and-, and that's why, like, a lot, like, if you look at these countries who are in civil wars, the reason they go into civil war is because they, like, rebel forces gain, they join forces with at least part of the military, you know, because you need that physical force. Like, you it, you can't just, like, protest forever. Yeah, if the military is just going to... It's not going to work in that yeah. situation. Because if it did, then you wouldn't be in that situation. Like, obviously, that's not what the people would want. Exactly. So a lot of times it's like, okay, well, when the military starts questioning who they're, like, supporting, then that's when, like... Yeah, that's when it goes south, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, like, super complicated. (laughs) And obviously there are a lot of different reasons why certain countries succeeded and certain, like, most countries didn't. But that's kind of just, like, my oversimplification of, like, oh, blame it on the institutions. But obviously there's a lot of other factors. Um, But basically, like, what we learned and what we saw from the uprisings in the spring of 2011 is that, like, there's... Mass demonstrations and peaceful protests are actually really powerful and can result in change. And it really showcased the ability of social media to fuel protests and like also communicate the goals of the protesters to the outside world. Um, I think that's kind of why it spread so quickly and it was so far reaching was because like social media, you could reach the whole world, you know, finally. <laughs> It showed autocratic governments and the rest of the world that millions of people living in Islamic nations believe in free expression and democratic governance. And yeah, basically like what started as a single act of protest from like one individual resulted in a huge movement that like spread across an entire region. And that's basically the Arab Spring. Uh, It's really complicated. There's a lot more to talk about, but... 
hopefully that kind of gives people like some background on what's going on today. Yeah, no, definitely. That's like the tip of the iceberg into what's happening in the middle in the Middle East. And- yeah. Yeah. yeah, and also, like, I just want to, like, before we end, I just want to say, like, I don't know, I feel like oh, the region is extremely diverse, and they're, like, the situation varies extremely, like, between each country, and I, I kind of chose to focus on countries that, like, were in similar situations with, like, civil war and regime changes, but, like, that's not what all of the Middle East looks like, and it's not just all, like, war-torn not everyone is suffering and yeah each country is very different so Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, yeah I don't mean to oversimplify with this but yeah no I think you did good good job on trying your best with the name pronunciation (laughs) hopefully we did we got some of those right um hopefully at least one (laughs) thank you Nat for presenting on the Arab Spring and Yeah, we learned a lot, and I hope that we can continue talking about different events in the Middle East so we get a more diverse perspective on what's happening, because I, for one, have a very, I think of it as a monolithic area, and it's definitely not in any sense, so this will be a good opening topic for us. Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) Bye. This has been an episode of How Did We Not Know That? If you liked it, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also follow us on all social media, including YouTube, at How Did We Not Know That? If you thought our podcast was low quality, we know. We thought so, too. Help us improve the podcast by contributing to our Patreon. Thank you for listening, and see you guys next week.